Hello and welcome to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM, broadcasting from the unceded Musqueam territory of UBC's Point Grey campus. I am your outgoing host, Jake Clark, presenting his last show uh, at uh, CITR for the foreseeable future. And we're going to kick that show off right quick with an interview with Johnny McRae. Hey, the man currently bringing us the Versus Festival of Words, coming to a variety of venues near you with some very interesting uh, events planned. Johnny, how are you? I'm doing well. How about you, Jake? Can't complain. Things are good. The sky is chirping. The birds are blue. You know, <laughs> it's it's pretty wonderful. I gotta say, uh, as far as far as things go, you know, mm. I uh, get a, get your last show. It's an exciting time to be here. Yeah, I, I would say so. I've been here for a while, so there's a lot of there's a lot of things to think about with mm. that. And but this is not about me. This is about you. And <laughs> well, this is about Versus too, which is a a pretty substantial project. For those who aren't familiar, can you unpack Versus a little for us? Yeah. So uh, Versus Festival of Words is an annual event uh, that runs for ten days, uh, largely up and down Commercial Drive or in the east side of uh, Vancouver. There, uh, it's uh, what we call an alternative literary festival. So it's a spoken word centered festival, which some people might consider to be like performance poetry or is maybe more commonly known to people right now as slam poetry. Um, Without unpacking all that, it's really it's a very performance centered festival, but we also uh, highlight writers who bring their work to the stage and other artists who uh, work in ways where, uh, you know, poetic composition is central to their craft. So songwriters uh, you'll see comedians sometimes on our stage. We, we really take a broad view to uh, literature and what we call orature. And that's very interesting to me because, well, as someone who do, who's done stand-up, and I was actually in the UBC Slam chapbook this mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. Nice. A shameless self-promotion there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But from multiple people at this chapbook launch, your name came up quite a bit. Hmm. As sort of this organizer, of, you were originally in UBC Slam, if I'm told, if I'm told correctly, or you were originally affiliated with it. Yeah, well, it was a bit of a funny story. Myself and a fellow student at the time, Lucia Mish, uh, dreamed of uh, having wine and poetry parties, and we thought that if we formed a club, magically the AMS would give us a lot of money. So, uh, of course, that is not how things work. But we did I, wind I up creating the poetry slam. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But uh, yeah, we, we, we formed the club and thought, well, we'll have a, a poetry slam and, and that'll be our, our sort of reason for existing. If I remember correctly, I think Lucia was the feature act uh, at this Yeah, launch. recently, so recently, yeah. That, that, I think that might have been where you came up there, but certainly you're a foundational figure in that respect. Hmm. And that's certainly sort of a herald of this versus to an extent because you're yeah. you're moving the organization yeah it's a uh, sort of been a, a bit of a full circle journey in a way i was i was a, a baby poet at that time i was just starting to perform at the vancouver poetry slam that happens at cafe du soleil every monday and i had gotten on the the van slam team and went to one tournament in the states and got super pumped on poetry slam uh so I came back and I thought, you know, this is something that would be really suited to UBC and the students here. Um, in fact, our original name was uh, Slam UBC, which which uh, certainly employed a uh, a little double double entendre in that too. Uh, what do you mean? I don't. I, don't I, I couldn't. You know, I don't know. It's, I, it's, it's very profound completely stuff. Over, completely like, over yeah. my. <laughs> and that is very interesting to think about, though, because Cafe du Soleil is sort of the linchpin of mm. Vancouver poetry community in a lot of ways. They have a really good open mic there. Yeah. And I, I do want to talk about the Van, Van Slam in general because uh, Canadians are doing pretty well in the apparent poetry boom. 
I mean, it's it's yeah. that that's uh, like there's well, not necessarily slam, but there's Rupi Kaur on even more Instagram. You've got the who's the guy in the silver guy fox mask? Uh, Atticus. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think I know who he is, incidentally, because he's about as good as hiding his identity as the members of Daft Punk. Oh yeah. <laughs> and then probably most directly, there's Shane Koizan. Yeah. Who I'm told is move sort of swimming in the same waters. Yeah, well, Shane was uh, Shane was a longtime performer at the Vancouver Poetry Slam. Actually, well back in the early 2000s, he started there in '99, performed through uh, through the early 2000s there. So a lot of his um, initial uh, uh, presence in spoken word came through uh, those years, and then he graduated upwards and has uh, had repeated increases in success coming out of that. Would you say that Shane Koizan is a strong influence or a strong popularizer of Vancouver poetry? Um, yeah, I mean, maybe not Vancouver poetry specifically, just because I think he's he's not known so much in association with uh, our scene in terms of how the broader public knows him. Uh, but certainly, you know, I, know, I remember when he first really exploded onto the public consciousness, and every time I would tell someone that I performed at the poetry slam they'd say oh so you like you know <laughs> that's like shane koizan you know you know shane koizan or that's why it must be you know so um in fact i, I work with uh, another poet named shane not shane koizan but every time i tell people that i work with a poet named shane that's the first person they, they kind of go oh shane koizan yeah i know that guy so that's interesting to me because when i think the name shane i think of shane mcgowan from the pogues mm, okay, so yeah. <laughs> i also consider a poet but that's originally my associations when i heard Shane Koizan, the first time I kept picturing Shane McGowan. Yeah. A little off. Yeah. In a few ways. <laughs> a bit, 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 bit of a different. Uh... Just imagine one or the other. Yeah. In, in different situations. But I, I, and about that, about the sort of the slam scene and with the definite performative aspect there, because you mentioned there's stand up involved. There's also a huge crossover with music. I think because yep. these are all great open mic performances. And I think that open mics that combine the three make for really interesting sort of scenarios. And I, I kind of want to ask, in relation to verses, but also your experience in general, mm-hmm. what's it like putting on a slam show? What's it like touring in these competitions? Um, you know, it's a uh, it's something I find very enlivening. Getting to to engage directly with different audiences, and there's you see so much of the difference of uh, the communities that you're in. Um, so you know, naturally, there's a uh, there's a fairly broad crossover in terms of the type of folks that are interested in going out to a poetry night. Uh, but you really see um, some, yeah, just remarkable differences and in, in idiosyncrasies of the communities around the country that, that you get to perform in. Um, and same with the, the poets. I, I, I find that every region really seems to cultivate a, not, not necessarily a voice, but uh, a, a certain kind of set of characteristics to the poetry. And so Vancouver, for example, for a long time has been known across North America as being like a weird slam, uh, not because the work that we do um, is weird and maybe this sounds odd, but the, in the conventional ways in which we might associate something with weird. Um, so not not like it allows for things like surrealism and absurdity, but it also means that people, it's weird because people have taken unconventional approaches to uh, some very uh, intense uh, subject matter as well as, you know, it's for a long time, it's the sort of poem where you could see someone get up and speak about um, experiences of oppression or violence Uh on the same night as someone will get on stage and do a poem about socks. I, I do imagine that there's got to be at least one person who's done both at the same time. 
Oh yeah, for sure. I can't think of Which, the exact poem, but I, I definitely uh, uh, I've seen numerous poems on that stage over the years where there's an analogy there. Yeah. Someone, I mean, recently, uh, uh, one of our local poets who just made the Vancouver Slam team um, uh, had a poem I, I really loved uh, that was an an ode to gender neutral bathrooms, and so it was this really uh, kind of a love poem to gender neutral bathrooms, and it was such a like a sweet. Uh, and and yet profound way of exploring uh, their experiences of um, fear and invisibility outside of those spaces uh, and how comforting it is for them as as a trans person to have a space where they can be, um, yeah, feel themselves and and not have to deal with someone from outside, you know, all that BS. So, uh, yeah, I think you still see this work uh, throughout the stages. And it's something for verses that we seek to highlight because we really look at um, uh, the way in which artists are able to take very creatively engaging approaches um, uh, to really difficult subject matter. So there's a huge crossover with our festival with artistry and activism. And the way that we, uh, and yet how we've gone about curation throughout the years is also to say that, you know, we want people to come and, and hear what the artists have to say, and we want to see them engage with uh, with difficult subjects, with things that need to be addressed, things that need to be highlighted and brought to the surface, uh, and at the same time still put on shows that are going to be entertaining, that you're going to come out and come away from that show being like, I got moved and I got entertained all at the same time. And I propose that the act we were probably most uh, informed about before this in Versus is Vivek Shreya's Death Threat book mm-hmm. launch, mm-hmm. Uh, which is, uh, a, well, I'll, I'll just read the press release, is using satire and surrealism, Death Threat is an unflinching portrayal of violent harassment from the, from the perspective of both the perpetrator and the target. And that is uh, a, being launched as a tandem performance of the Vancouver poet laureate Christy Lee Charles, mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, um, among others. And I um, that in particular, because I do I do believe that um, uh, Vivek Shreya has do- has also spoken a lot on trans issues, which are of course very hot right now in a lot of ways. And these kind of experiences are, in my experience, quite common in SLAM because it approaches these sentiments. What kind of power do you think that has with SLAM being popularized? What sort of trend do you see in that expression? You know, there's something about the open stage I've long felt that uh, allows people the opportunity to be heard and to be seen uh, in a world where they very often are not allowed to be or do not feel like they can be. So, um, you know, it's been my experience with slam stages and I work a lot with youth, so I see it, especially with them as well, uh, that it it can very much become, it's not always, but it can be a space where people come and they, they say, you know what, I, I want to speak to something that, um, I, I don't get to talk about or that if I do get to talk about, I get slapped down for speaking about and have a room full of people hold me up for having done that. Um, and, uh, you know, it's like I say, it's not perfect, but I think that the, it really creates that sort of space. And I think, in fact, Death Threat is uh, a work that really hits that right dead on because you're looking at a work that's you know, coming from, uh, we had an article that came out recently interviewing Vivek that I, I thought was, you know, 
so perfect and weird at the same time because of course they're talking about how she's an old hand at hate speech you know like receiving people just sending in hate mail death threats messages uh violence uh, continuously from anonymous sources um part of what i understood was a huge motivation for her in creating this was that the the person who sent in the particular letters that became the the substance for death threat um was not anonymous they uh, they put their name and their address on them and they they but you know still came about things in a very um hateful manner so i think there's a lot of people who don't get heard who don't have a uh, uh, public platforms to speak to uh, uh, people about the things they're experiencing uh, without being suppressed for doing so. And slams have traditionally sought to be spaces where people can do that, where they can and not only do that, but be empowered for doing it and be celebrated for doing it. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think that that's, that's something in that space that really draws people in to be heard. And I, I know from our own community that it's been something that for a lot of people that are struggling with the uh, the types of oppression they face in a, a gender binary world um, and in a world that does not accept the fluidity of being that people have um, that you know it, it has generally been a space where that's been possible um, and uh, I think I, I put it this way once where I, I uh, <laughs> when I first started slamming my mom, saw a slam and she like a national slam we had a video of one of these big competitions and she was like how does uh, i don't know how you could uh, sit there and, and deal with people yelling at you from the stage all this time and i mean honestly it's a, it's an exaggeration people are not yelling in slams that much um but uh but i said to her i was like well think about it if this is you know this is kind of the underground this is a this is really an underground art form in a lot of ways that has become has emerged into mainstream consciousness uh, so if this is what you're hearing in this underground art space, what does that tell you about the surface and what's going on up there? Well, I'll tell you. Like The thing is, I've been to, so I've been to a lot of stand-up open mics. I've been to a lot of slam open mics. I've never seen someone heckled in mm. slam. I have seen someone cut off at one point yep. because they were twice over the time limit and they made a kind of racist yeah that'll remark. happen and it, it was it was like not not a great uh it was sort of a three strikes thing but in in stand-up which i would say uh comedy and poetry use i think the same parts of your brain in different ways because mm-hmm. especially one-liner comedy uh, you have to do the same thing and i think in comedy the specific idea is to incite laughter i think in poetry the idea is often varied but it's still aiming at an emotion with language in a pretty short space usually yeah and in stand-up i've been i've been really creatively heckled i i've seen a guy get a bottle thrown at him i've seen well, i've seen that happen multiple times but only like once when it was like close to him but people take aim like sometimes people get real angry especially when you know you're at you're at 12 king and it's past midnight and then you know the the people from the cocaine party down the street drift in yeah because that that occasionally happens i've never seen that happen in slam which to me is interesting because slam tends to deal with tends to because comedy gets pretty dark too but deals directly with these pretty dark emotions so i think the element of catharsis is different and mm-hmm. it attracts a different sort of strain of of reaction to it that said if somebody did heckle slam i mean i think if you get a big enough crowd there's going to be one asshole well there's, i mean it, i think it manifests differently what what i've seen in the past is that uh people will take offense to something in a poem and uh, they are more likely to 
approach the poet offstage afterwards and speak to them angrily and get really intense uh, uh, about that sort of thing. So the the type of heckling I've seen at slams over the years is always a bit more friendly. Uh, people, it's usually other poets joking around with the poet who's on stage. Um, but there are certainly times where, uh, you know, because I, I don't think it's any secret that when you make a statement uh, that directly addresses and exposes some form of systemic oppression, for example, which is something you hear a lot about at slams, uh, the people who feel implicated by that statement will often get extremely defensive. Um, you know, we have terms like white tears and white fragility to address this when it comes to like racial uh, uh, t- subjects. Not a lot of t-shirts. Um, yeah, you know, so it's something that that uh, uh, you know that that those terms exist for a reason, and it's because sometimes people seem to find it offensive to be told that uh, perhaps they are existing with levels of privilege that they did not. Uh, previously realize and that their actions may directly or indirectly be contributing to a world that um, is violent towards and, and oppressive towards uh, other other people within the community. Uh, and I think maybe for some people it's because that doesn't jam with their self-concept uh, and so they feel a need to go to someone else and try to get angry at them about having the gall to suggest that even if they don't believe that they themselves are engaged in some kind of prejudice uh, that they may be. What are you uh, talking about? That hurts my feelings. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But I, I mean, it's it happens. Just enjoy that this is too white, yeah. guys. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's uh, there's layers to this one. Yeah. Oh yeah, many. It is it is very valuable though in that respect because I've seen a lot of a lot of voices and it actually has helped me learn a great deal because I am not a terribly well informed person on a lot of these uh, issues because I just not haven't it's not out of any desire to not be informed it's just you know it 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 often does not come to you unless something makes it mm-hmm. you know and that that's that's fair because the the idea that people have to justify who they are barring criminal inquiry is you know it's it's, it's not necessarily a reasonable thing to ask of a human being but in art that's what that's what's being done and that's very helpful yeah I'd say. yeah now i do want to kind of touch on this um, with uh, kind of with verses because there's a couple of shows that I do want to also mention uh, individually, and that's in Terabang. That's on Tuesday, April 30th, I believe, at the Colch. Yeah, uh, and that's uh, actually a show that has been at Fringe. I'm pretty sure. I, th- I think maybe a, uh, a similar name, but uh, I, I know I've seen so there is something out there called Interrobang that I saw that made me think, oh, maybe we have a bit of crossover. It here. might have been a burlesque. Yeah, it, it might have been might have been an event at the Rio. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we did have a we did have an event called Interrobang at the festival last year that, that included burlesque, but I don't know if there's a relation. Oh my goodness! Why are they not bringing that back? Yeah, well. <laughs> this one does seem interesting though. It's music, theater, and poetry, yep. uh, courtesy of uh, CIPS champion Vanessa Cardona and Hide Loop poet Miss Panic. I believe mm-hmm. I'm saying yep. it correctly. The typography is a little strange, um, and that just seems very interesting to me. As a display, because again, the entire bang is interesting bit of punctuation. Yep. We yep. should really have that on our keyboards. It's very helpful. I know, hey? Another okay. one, speaking of thinking about keyboards, is Spoken Nerd, which is at the Storm Crow, because of course it is. That's Wednesday, May 1st. Yep. Um, and that's uh, featuring super nerd poets. I'm, I am, again, reading the press release. Oh, Julia yeah. Gaskill and Stephen Meads from Portland, Oregon. Uh, and I can only picture, when I think of Stephen, the, 
this even means a guy in this equation. I can only picture from Portland, Oregon. I can only picture Colin Malloy from the Decemberists. <laughs> I don't know why, <laughs> but that's, that's, that's all I am capable of doing. So <laughs> the night promises poetic cosplay and profoundly nerdy spoken word with a poet's doom decided by a D20 die. I really wish I was here for that because that sounds pretty awesome. I, the first nerd slam I ever went to, uh, it was in the States and I watched a poet perform an entire poem in, uh, one of Tolkien's Elvish languages. Oh, that must be well. That, that they're they're designed for that. Oh, that's been pretty yeah. beautiful. It, it covers a wide gamut of of nerdiness, but it's a really um, wonderful celebration. And it's it is. I mean, literally, it's you'll see the poets will get uh, get all dressed up uh, for the event if they have the time. Uh, so it's a, it's definitely a great event to check out. They're like uh, filk songs, basically. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, those are. I, I like those. Like that's a good. And Tolkien would have approved of that too. Oh. That's, that's what he designed Middle Earth to do. Yeah, I, I find it really interesting though that these events are going on because, again, especially with D and D, there's a whole class where that's the point of the game is the bards. You know? Yeah. You ever play D and D? I haven't, but I did recently. Uh, a lot of poets do, and I did run into a group of poets that were plotting out uh, running a campaign where all of them were bards. There's a podcast <laughs> like that. They're all musicians, so they actually sing the songs. Okay, yeah, that's interesting stuff. It's um, I I used to I've had uh, I have a huge stack of D and D textbooks at home because uh, I've been uh, I was given a lot of them when I was when I was a young was I was a, when I was a young lad. I'm, I'm 21 years old and I look 30. So, but the uh, and since then I've just. I, I do think a lot about it from time to time because it's such an intricate thing, and especially for people whose job is to tell stories and to, to work with words, it's fantastic. Like, John Favreau, among others, has said that it's how he makes stories. Having seen Iron Man 2, that's not always a good thing, but, you know, better than nothing. It's a yeah. good organizational yeah. scheme. Um, a couple more questions mm-hmm. uh, before we head out. The first is, I do want to touch back on, you mentioned idiosyncrasies earlier yep. on. With venues and performance, what's sort of the most idiosyncratic place that you've performed as a poet, or Ooh. what's the place where you'd least expect poetry to have been performed? Um, one that immediately comes to mind: there's a festival up in uh, uh, Cumberland on the island called Atmosphere, and their main stage is a uh, like a, a former circus tent giant circus tent. I like what I'm hearing. Um, and they have, I can't remember the name of the sound company, but they have this like massive sound company that they brought in at least the year that we were there. Um, you know, they had acts like Black Alicious and Charlie Tuna and Tribe Called Red performing on that stage. So they had amazing oh, sound. And uh, my my Shane and I, uh, the one I referred to earlier, uh, Shane, Shane McGowan, Gra- gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but we, we got to perform there in the afternoon of the day. So it was quite hilarious because we were performing with this massive sound and about 20 people standing in the center of this massive tent at like two in the afternoon in a soccer field in Cumberland on Vancouver Island. Um, there's, there's, I mean, there's countless weird places. The thing I love about spoken word is that you can kind of be fit into, you know, I've performed uh, everywhere from like a, a, an, a, like a tiny empty art gallery in Syracuse, New York in the middle of a five day snowstorm um, to possibly one of actually one of the weirdest shows I ever did. I think not even show was just a, a single poem performance at the Imagine Day Pep Rally uh, in 2013, performing on like I can't remember the Thunderbird Arena or whatever one of the ones is over there. Um, so it, spoken word takes you into some very weird places, just generally, uh, big and small. 
Well, apropos of that, what's on the what's in the future for you and or versus? Um, what's your ideal project? Well, you know, for now, I'm I'm sticking with verses through next year. We're we're kind of marking through a period of transition. Next year will be our tenth anniversary. Um, so, I mean, you know, my agenda right now is this festival starts tomorrow with our uh, kickoff of our youth events and goes right through till Saturday the fourth. I'm going to be all in that, uh, and then uh, it'll be pretty much within pretty quickly thereafter turning towards next year. Um, next year, I'm looking at really. Uh, I'm very interested in this crossover between music and poetry, songwriting and poetry, and and how uh, we see music and poetry, writing all these different things as separate mediums now, but in a in an oral context, that separation is far less pronounced, and they're kind of all fused together. So, I'm looking at uh, the possibilities of um, programming for next year, giving greater emphasis to. Uh, both orality in its purer forms and uh, to music and uh, poetic acts and poets who are taking traditional oral traditions and reworking them into uh, uh, modern artistic context. As people who work in an auditory medium, we're pretty thrilled to hear that. Mm-hmm. Oh, it should be exciting. Well, keep us posted. We'd love to feature you. Definitely will do. Now, it's been a thrill to have you in here. Johnny, check out Verses. That's, uh, that starts uh, with Sounds Like Fire, the Death Threat book launch on Sunday, April 28th at 8 p.m. at the York Theater and goes on. I believe, you know, tickets are online. Lots of fun events. Check it out. Uh, we're going to take a short PSA break, but then when we shall return, we're going to talk about the ballet. Yay. <laughs> so you've just been, you've just, just been <laughs> silent for so long. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually here. <laughs> Sarah is in the house, ladies and gentlemen. We shall return. I'm Jake Clark, UBC Arts Report, Johnny McRae, um, forever. <laughs> we don't need to tell you that Vancouver has a housing problem. Mass evictions. Master and evictions. Unfair rent increases. What happened to rent control and protection from unfair eviction? If these or other housing matters concern you, you may be interested in joining the Vancouver Tenants Union. For more information, visit tenantsunion.ca. Without the help and support of our friends, we here at CITR wouldn't be able to bring you all the great music, art, cinema, and culture that you love. Thanks to the long-standing support from the Rio Theatre, we are able to keep you informed on all the great artists, films, and everything else coming to town there. For all the current information about who and what's playing at the Rio Theatre, visit their website at www.riotheatre.ca. All right, the ballet. Oh my god, I'm so, okay. So, um, this is the Coastal City Ballet, for the record. I, as a ballerina myself, I have been dancing for since I was three. So this was really important for me to see because um, I saw Ballet BC's program one, I believe, um, last term. And, okay, I didn't know Ballet VC was a contemporary ballet company because they have ballet in their title. Um, the reason for that is... Because when you think of ballet, you don't tend to think of uh, modern performance. Yeah, I, I was just Unless imagining... Unless you're Darren Aronofsky. <laughs> I was just imagining classical ballet, you know, like, I don't know, The Nutcracker, Swan Lake, stuff like that. And... Uh, love The Nutcracker. 
me too anyways uh when i went to valley bc's program one i was really surprised but you know it was a nice type of surprise i really liked it so apparently the reason for that is because you know all of the dancers they have ballet um training let's say and they can all do point work but ballet bc doesn't do that because they are a contemporary ballet and what i want to see is basically so they are having their program three on what are the dates jake that would be may 9th to 11th yeah and they're doing three pieces and one of them is breakfast uh, bedroom folk by sharon and so i went to see the ballet pieces discover dance series this was last week so what this is is basically they give you an insight of their program and this was an insight of program three specifically bedroom folk uh what it was was we got to see basically a rehearsal it was like a rehearsal um there were no costumes just the dancers no lighting they were just dancing in front of us it was in an intimate um oh uh, god what is the word oh my god <laughs> i'm sorry sometimes my english fails me so, really bad <laughs> sarah that happens to me as well <laughs> shockingly frequently i remember i can't I, st I still couldn't remember the word for aphasia oh wow yeah so usually what okay that joke's not very good uh, i mean you know what <laughs> Let's move past this. Let's carry on. Yep. <laughs> Let's talk about bedroom folk. So always a great line. <laughs> intimate theater environment. Yes, that's what it is. So uh, just a little information. Um, this piece was inspired by the Gaga movement, and the Gaga movement is Gaga or Dada. Gaga. Yeah, it's not Dada. I. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because. Interesting Gaga. star. Yeah. Uh -huh. I mean, Dada's ballet would be pretty out there. Well, I think Stravinsky notwithstanding. Uh, yeah, right to spring. Yeah, Dada. Right. Would that I, be mm -hmm. Dada's ballet? Would that be Dada's ballet? Right to spring? I would think so. Right of spring is really weird and primal else. and scary. Yeah, I would think, yeah, Dada is a good word to describe it. I've heard D uh, Donald Fagan from Steely Dan. I've read his book, um, Eminent Hipsters, I think. And mm -hmm. it's he's describing... Uh, he falls asleep with his headphones on quite frequently, uh, and then he wakes up to shuffle playing the Rites of Spring, and he described it as wake, like waking up with the bed on fire. Oh my god! Okay, that's a perfect description, honestly. Oh, it's it's, it's really <laughs> it triggered a riot the first Yo. time that that ballet premiered, and I'm like, yeah, really? Oh, they were touchy back then, and then I listened to it. I'm like, yeah, I'd probably freak yeah, out. Like, mm. I, I think if you play that to sober people now, you were fine. But if you had, like, somebody on mushrooms in there, you could probably screw them up for yeah. the rest of their life. The choreography is pretty in line with that, too. I mean, there's this one solo in Ride of Spring. Multiple dancers have puked while dancing that, apparently. So it's that challenging. Um, That's concerning. It is on many levels. <laughs> it is really concerning. That 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 would kind of, that would make things worse. Like there's a riot and there's a there's a riot and our prima donna threw up. Yeah. Igor Stravinsky, a success. <laughs> I mean, uh, honestly, this was kind of in line with that too. Um, the Coastal City Ballet. Yeah, Bedroom Folk. Yes, because okay, so I just looked up 
what the Gaga movement actually is to so that I can give you know more information um, it's a new way of gaining knowledge and self-awareness through your body basically it's not exactly dancing um, so in the when I went to see this what they did was they were like hey let's explore gaga movement together so at our seats we were just they were just like you know move your shoulders just move your shoulders and your wrist now you're like whole body and you know whatever you did that's basically yeah. so in short walk talk fashion baby move it work that bit crazy yeah i had to put a lady gaga reference <laughs> was, in there somewhere okay this is gonna sound really bad because you know i'm a dancer and all but when they first said gaga movement i was like lady gaga what's going on but is um, it that far off though <laughs> Honestly, no. She wore a dress out of meat. This is that equivalent dance equivalent of a meat dress, I would say. Sarah, that is a fantastic line. <laughs> I, I am just, I'm just thrilled that, that that sentence exists. Thank you so this much. This is the dance equivalent of a meat dress. <laughs> Boom. So, <laughs> just to be clear, how'd you feel about it? Oh my God. Okay, I loved it. Okay, because, so that's good. Yeah, it is good. So Bedroom Folk isn't exactly Gaga. Sharon was inspired by Gaga when she was choreographing this. I just wanted to say that because okay. look up, like if you are going to see it, and please do see it. It's amazing. I watched it without costume and lighting and it. I couldn't take my eyes off the dancers. They were amazing. And it was really intense. Uh, but, you know, it, uh, I don't even have the words. Okay, so what she does with Bedroom Fault, what she aimed to do basically is use specific metaphors and imagery and try to show you that through dance. And you actually, like, see that there's, it's really clearly done. And when I saw this, they have been only practicing this like rehearsing this for two weeks so that's not a lot of time to rehearse a dance so they were still really good and imagine how good it's going to be in between may 9th and 11th and anyways so <laughs> i am rambling um have you listened to my contributions <laughs> to this show i'm surprised the lady gaga direction did not lead into a long commentary on a star is born <laughs> I haven't watched that, actually. I have so. a few thoughts on that movie, but I will. <laughs> I don't think it's possible to spoil it, but I, I won't digress. I don't know. So, bottom line, Coastal City Ballet, doing pretty good. Yo, yeah, because, okay, you can see, honestly, because Ballet BC always uh, performs at the Queen Elizabeth Theater, and it's a pretty big theater, right? Yeah. So, you see the dancers, but you don't see, like actually how much they sweat how much they're engaged and like with this discovered dance series you get to see it because it's so intimate and honestly at one point i was scared that while they were dan turning and jumping the i would like their sweat would hit me <laughs> kind of because that's this an is interesting <laughs> thing to say about a ballet performance yeah because it's not you know it's contemporary ballet, so you honestly, you don't know what to expect. Uh, but it's really amazing to see how engaged the, car the dancers were uh, with their body. Like, honest, I don't, 
you have to see it. If to know what I'm talking about, you have to go see it. It's going to be amazing. Also, I want to say that um, I said that Sharon was trying to paint images and, you know, give you imagery with the dance when she was creating this. And at the end of the show, there was a Q&A with the dancers. And then this one person from the audience was like, you know, I don't have a question. I just want to point out that the dance reminded me of tr stormtroopers, but scary type of stormtroopers. <laughs> Everybody was like, what? From Star Wars? Yeah. So for her, it was scary stormtroopers. For me, it was more like a, a dream. But Interesting. No, yeah. Now, I'm just trying to wrap my head around... <laughs> I'm just picturing a Star Wars ballet now. Uh, it works d d better than I would have expected. It's kind of like the Spider-Man musical. Uh, you know, it's a thing. It exists. Yep. I get why. Yeah, I mean. Oh, man. I can kind of see it, though. Yeah. In my mind's eye. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I was so excited to hear that commentary because... It means that the dancers did such a good job at make like helping us visual visualize what Sharon tried to do and create. So and it's different in everybody's mind. And also the music is kind of intense. So at one point I did felt like I couldn't breathe for a second. But you know that's how you know that. You're really into it. <laughs> There's a lot of things going on. So this ballet is the this music is... is the performative equivalent of a meat dress. Yeah. <laughs> where there are people emulating the movements of stormtroopers, and the music occasionally deprives one of the ability to breathe. Yeah. See, but like, okay, honestly, I think that it won't. It is like. So I'm, see this at your own peril. It's it. It won't be as intense at the Queen Elizabeth Theater because it's a bigger place and it's actually on a stage. I could see every muscle, every movement. I could hear them breathe at this place. So that's why this was so intense for me. But like the dance itself and, and the dancers, they're so good. Just please go see it. I'm so sad that I can't because I'm not going to be here in May. But I really wanted to see how they would make the costumes like what color are the costumes going to be you know like stormtroopers are white are white but i was more imagining black for example how the lighting is going to be Th those are really important too and please go see it <laughs> you know it's really i, I am well I, I have to make this reference because i'm me but you ever seen black swan yeah <laughs> yeah like the the thing is i think black swan i i i'm very sure i mentioned this on the last show as well but darren aronofsky also made the wrestler with mickey rourke and the that was originally supposed to be the same movie about a wrestler who falls in love with a ballerina. Oh. Which I kind of want to see. Yeah. Because both of those movies were really good. But the thing is that the wrestler is about finding beauty in a brutal sport. Mm -hmm. And Black Swan is about finding brutality in a beautiful sport. Yeah. And I think what the wrestler does really well is it plays up to this sort of myth-making, mm -hmm. this ability to create that grandeur out of something that is really just very, very sweaty and quite literally vulgar in a lot of ways. Yeah. Whereas Black Swan points out that if you put the, if you view it close enough, you see something that is based around pushing human beings mm -hmm. at this point to the breaking point for the sake of aesthetics. Yeah. And that that is also what happens in The Wrestler. 
but it's it's reversed. That's really, I think, a powerful point to make mm-hmm. about things like this. About to an extent about the rights of spring. I mean, that's more about the audience because again, they lost their they lost their yeah. shit. Content warning, lost their shit. Content that. <laughs> but the with something like Black Swan, something like with this, there's this primal capacity there, and in something like ballet, you never expect that. I think even exactly. if that's advertised to you, you don't visualize that. Even if you've seen Black Swan, you probably don't visualize it in person. Mm-hmm. That's true. I hope you don't. Yeah, no. <laughs> that would be bad. There's, we got some other intense things going on, I will say, because <laughs> we have a bunch of theater shout-outs that I do want to mention uh, before we slide into the finale of the show. Uh, the first thing is Thomas McKechnie's Four and a Half Ignoble Truths, uh, which is the highly theatrical and personal story of clinical depression. That's the subtitle. Uh, is... And the, described by the press release as an hour-long anarchic demonstration. Uh, I, these things, you know, kind of plays into the Stravinsky a bit. And apparently, the show you described with the meat dress and the stormtroopers and the breath deprivation and so forth. Um, this That is being put on by Pi Theater. Uh, the opening night is tomorrow. Runs for a couple days at the KW Production Studio at... Uh, uh, number 10, 111 Hastings Street, Vancouver. Uh, entrance through us if you Woodward's Atrium. Um... Yeah, that's Pi Theater. Pi Theater's done some interesting stuff. Um, they're sort of one of the ships passing in the night for us as a review subject, but this is uh, seems like a very interesting show, and that that I think deserves to be mentioned alongside this because, uh, yeah, uh, there's a few other things. Um, and speaking of theater, uh, Pacific Theater did their uh, has released their 2019-2020 season, uh, and I feel. Uh, a few things about that, because, you know, uh, Pacific has been a great venue for me. I really like that it exists, and um, there is a very similar, I think there's one that seems like it is going to be somewhat similar, at least in uh, prospect, to Cherry Docks, which is the best of enemies, which is about civil rights activists and Atwater uh, meeting with C.P. Ellis, who was the exalted Cyclops, of the KKK. Now, before we progress uh, with this, I want you to know that the uh, the KKK organizes their ranks into Grand Dragon and Exalted Cyclops, among other things, uh, and that their promoters are called Klegals. Klegals, yeah. Uh, there's a point where this is supposed to make sense, but I don't know what level of frontal lobe decay is necessary to get there. <laughs> Like this is the thing. George Orwell said that you can that you can see a good book being written by someone who believes in something that's reprehensible within the degrees of sanity, which is why a good book written by a fascist is imaginable because sad as it may be, there are a lot of reasons people turn to fascism and these are institutional problems. You can't imagine a good book being written by a member of the KKK because if you're a member of the Ku Klux Klan, you've got to have a lot wrong upstairs and you have to be in in a certain sense congenitally stupid. I don't think that's controversial uh, to to say, and I I would say that that's utterly true. Um, And if you're one of the five black members of the Ku Klux Klan, that's a thing now. Um, I don't even know what to say about that, but that's a thing that exists. Yeah, unfortunately. So I just want to say one of those groups of people has fallen off the bus. It's not a good reflection on either. This play is going to take that – I ideally hope this play just – does go into how utterly ridiculous and stupid the clan is. 
as an organization. Like, there are – the thing about Cherry Dogs is that neo-Nazis, to an extent, deserve to be taken seriously because they are a threat. Because they, they, they'll they do that and because they have the ability to recruit. If you're – if you are functionally stupid enough to be taken in by the KKK, you deserve to be hit by a goddamn semi-truck. I was expecting a bus, but semi-truck was better. No, no, no. It's, it's, it, that's, that's how I feel about it because it is – so utterly beyond the bounds of sanity to me as a, as a, as as a canadian as an outsider looking in like if you're an insider there there's josh johnson has a great uh the comedian has a great story about the kkk is that you are only a racist after you attend your second clan rally because the first one's just a barbecue and then some people have costumes on you're like oh there's ghosts at the barbecue and then they're burning across you're like okay i'm out of here and I, I get that. I, I kind of do imagine that that is what the KKK does because I think that if if, if the Klansmen, I, I can't imagine you're able to recruit. I think you got to seeg that one in. But there's still people who'll do this. This is still a thing. We can't forget that. And then looking back on, like, people are like, the KKK looks silly looking back. The KKK has never looked serious. The only reason they look serious is because they're armed psychopaths. They're a bunch of inbred morons. And their ranks have included two sitting presidents of the United States. Woodrow Wilson and Harry S. Truman at different points endorsed the KKK. Now, I don't know, again, I don't know if this is in the best of enemies. I, I, but I really do hope that that touches on it because it makes an interesting contrast to Cherry Docs because I cannot, for the life of me, imagine taking a member of the KKK seriously enough to view them as a participant. And if they're able to do that, that's either a testament to the ability of drama or to, complac- or to, or to complicitness. And I hope it's the, the former because Pacific seems to have a strong enough moral compass there. Uh, another thing that they're doing is Lovesick by John Cariani. John Cariani's plays have been on uh, a few times there. And I, I do like John Cariani. Uh, it, the, his plays that have been on at Pacific have tended to be pretty interesting. And uh, this is described as the darker companion to Almost Maine. I believe that they have staged this before. But this is, um, yeah... I, I, I think that'll be good. There's a few others here, uh, but I, um, you know, I, 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 I wish Pacific the best, and I will miss them. They're also doing a Christmas Carol, which I think is going to be great. Uh, I hope it's going to be great. I have a lot of fond memories of a Christmas Carol. My father used to read it. Um, another, uh, do we have any other shout-outs? I don't believe we do. Um, I cut, now, uh, I'm going to play a couple short uh, PSAs, and then I'm going to come back to talk about Maritza. Uh, the Cinematheque, and then uh, I will uh, I will say goodbye, uh, and uh, well, talk to you then. Oh my gosh, Lauren! I have always wanted to be on the radio. Christy, you know you can do that at CITR and Discorder, right? What? Yeah, you can get a show or help with live broadcasts and interview people at shows around the city and make ads and PSAs that play during the shows. Wow. Yeah, just email volunteer at citr.ca and they can help you get started or just come into the station whenever. I will. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You're listening to CITR 101.9. 
broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus, located on the traditional, unceded, Coast Salish territory of the Hunkamenim-speaking Musqueam people. Discorder, that free magazine from CITR, has been documenting the best in music, arts, and culture since 1983. Let's see what one man of prestige has to say about Discorder. What up, though? This is Big Snoop Dogg, and I fucks with... Well, we'll never know what Snoop Dogg fucks with. Well, that's a, too I, bad. That's a, I don't know if there's a content warning for that, but you know what? Last show. Um, so a couple things I want to talk about is Marisa at the Chan. Now, it's actually very fitting because one of the first uh, things that I really covered, one of the first things I actually discovered through the radio was Fado music. Oh. Which is, uh, are you familiar? Um, no, but my I told my dad about it because, okay, I sent my dad the recordings of the show um, after every show, and then he listened to it, and he was like, oh, wait, your host is going to go see Marisa? I love Fado music. Sarah, you listen to Fado music. I'm like, okay, okay, Dad, I will, okay, but I have not listened to it yet. Um, wow. Like, so, <laughs> like, it's just, it's just, it is just an awesome, no, that's not a wow at the, you have not, that, that, not a, that's not <laughs> a, you have not you seen. not listen. It's just whole, I, I've seen so Carmino and Sarah Tavares came here for a double a double bill uh, when when I was when I was a strapping young reporter, and that show I remember because Carmino is a tiny little woman with a voice that will hit the rafters, and she's a beautiful singer. Sarah Tavares is also a really amazing singer, and she has a very very uh, I would say very pleasant and very calm personality that comes in through her music. J Cole actually sampled one of her songs really well for for balance. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a J Cole song. Now Maritza is kind of the uh, the the chief. I would say, for Fado, as I'm given to understand it. Now, there was a pre-show talk um, by a gentleman uh, named, I'm, I'm, let me just see if I, Vincente Biancardi de Camara. Yeah, I'm assuming, my, my pronunciation is probably closer to Spanish. Um, yeah, but I, I, I'm trying, I'm trying here. It's okay. It's, uh, you know, if, if Lua was here, it would be able to put me on the straight and narrow. Um, and he, he actually describes coming from four generations of Fado musicians, oh. including people who played with the Queen of Fado, Amalia Rodriguez. Mm-hmm. Uh, who uh, the the thing about Fado is very interesting is I know some there's a reasonably large Portuguese community in London, and this is pointed out to me when I watched the Anthony Bourdain episode on Portugal. But a lot of older Portuguese men, when they talk to you in public places, they fold up their hands so that their their hands are sort of balled up together in front of their mouth. You know why that is? Why? Because during the during Salazar's dictatorship, that's how you don't make sure people aren't reading your lips. Because everybody's wow, watching. Damn. So that was that was a rough time. Portugal's had some rough times, and Fado was probably one of the only art forms that was enabled there. And a lot, mm-hmm. of, a lot of poets worked in Fado. And there's one thing is that whenever I, I, I look at art like this, I do wish I could speak the language because I am missing it to a degree. Um, and there's 
there were parts though of this concert where she got to sing around like Trigarina, I believe was one of them, which is a song which uh, that phrase applies to a dark skinned and haired, dark haired woman from Southern Portugal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, the song was a sort of happy love song. A lot of Fado songs are very mournful. Um, a lot of very intense anguish uh, in some of these here. Mm-hmm. And the newer fa- style of Fado had, uh, has a rhythm section. This one had a really fantastic drummer, I will say that. Um, and the Portuguese guitar is a very interesting instrument. It's kind of like a 12-string a little bit. Oh, okay. Interesting stuff. Also accordions, because of course, um, I really honestly don't know how much I can say about this because it was such it was an amazing concert and the thing about Fado music is that it has this significance to me because it's something I've discovered entirely through the arts report Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have discovered it otherwise and I'm really glad that I did because it, it was it's it is a really beautiful genre and that's something I do intend to keep pursuing now con counter to that I have always really liked old timey exploitation film uh, and the Cinematex Poverty Row double features did not disappoint on that front because I went to do it to a double bill this past weekend of Damaged Lives and False Faces. So Damaged Lives uh, was made by Edgar G. Ulmer. He was, I believe, I want to say Czechoslovakian, not entirely sure. Uh, he was East, an Eastern European director who uh, emigrated to the States, as many did, uh, on account of the Nazism and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Edgar G. Ulmer is alongside Sam Fuller. He's not doesn't have the sheer like ability of Sam Fuller to maintain a moral compass in the face of disreputable things and impressions. But he was a really charismatic, uh, low budget filmmaker. Uh, Damaged Lives is a propaganda film, basically about uh, sec- about VD mm-hmm. uh, syphilis. They can't actually say it in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of unintentionally hilarious as many of these propaganda films are, like Reefer Madness. Um, but it, it, it was an interesting thing to see because Edgar G. Ulmer does know how to make his films pretty brisk, and he actually did put reasonably good actors in. A lot of it didn't have music either until the, a very climatic scene which had no dialogue and, and had the emotion scored by music. So it worked that way. It was interesting. And then Damaged Lives, which... Uh, false Faces, sorry. Now, thing about False Faces, uh, find it. Go see it. Find it however you can. It's probably in the public domain. Go online and find it because this is really, really amazing. It is, uh, I would say, bar none, uh, the most, it's probably the most relevant film I can think of from the 1930s in many, many levels. It's about a doctor who is thrown out of the hospital for basically taking money from patients uh, on the false premise of better treatment. And he puts up stakes in Chicago as a plastic surgeon. And he he can't advertise, but he's extremely underhanded. This guy, Silas Brenton, the guy who plays him is incredibly charismatic. And you do get the appeal early on because this guy is so smooth. Let me look him up here. Um, And this character, uh, there's no other way to say it. He is just utterly despicable. Like, he is... He is human garbage on such a massive level. And I have a profe- – so I've seen a lot of the show Nip Tuck. As a son of a doctor, I've mentioned this on the show before. I have an inherent dislike and distrust of plastic surgery, especially cosmetic plastic surgery. Well, no, I, for practical cos- plastic surgery, I actually have an admiration for it because that's mm-hmm. difficult to do. If you want to put a firefighter's face back together after a burning two-by-four fell on him, yeah, you got to be a really good surgeon. Ten percent of plastic surgery graduates do that. The rest of them do facelifts boob jobs and whatever else 
boob jobs. I don't know. Do brings good money. <laughs> yeah. For the for the rest of their lives, they collect a lot of money and they contribute basically nothing but insecurity and generally just a bizarrely commercial and pathetic view of the medical profession that I I, I just utterly loathe to to a degree that as the son of a doctor it's just kind of insulting and this is one this guy unlike the characters in Nip Tuck there's no attempt to make Silas Brenton sympathetic so one he's more likable than any of the characters in Nip Tuck because you kind of want to kick them in the head mm-hmm. a lot but with Silas Brenton too you think you realize and he has to defend himself in court at the end of this and he does it by appealing against experts because he's cost a woman her legs oh wow and here's the spoiler. Now, I told you to go out and see it, so please do. He wins. What? And he ends up being shot by this woman as revenge. Ooh. Because this is absolutely true. Because that is one thing that is terrifying, is the ability to levy hatred against expertise to excuse criminal negligence. Yeah. Because that happens a lot. And that's something that these pencil necks will do frequently. So I do very much wish that this should be seen. This was an amazing thing, and I'm really glad to Cinematech for putting it up. Say name False faces. False faces. It is. Right? It is actually really cheeky and funny, and he, the character is really appealing until you realize just how much of a like this this grotesque piece of human plankton okay. he is. Like, there's there's a point like when when he dies in the end, it's almost understated because that isn't really a victory, mm-hmm. because what allowed him to exist will happen again, and it did. The medical profession loses in this movie, despite being, they're, they're the good guys, they're, mm-hmm. but they're the reasonable experts who are like, yeah, you kind of killed a person, at least one person. Oh, did, did he kill a person? No, no, you've cost a person their legs. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, yeah, well, experts, <laughs> they're out to get me. Oh my God. Where does that sound familiar? Yeah, yeah, check it out. It's, uh, it was pretty fantastic, and uh, it's also been shown under What Price Beauty, I believe, uh, but it's a fantastic film, and I highly recommend checking it out. So, I, uh, I I really do have to bid farewell because um, the medicine show is on uh, is on next, and I really should uh, let them step into the studio. Uh, but before I do, I just want to say uh, to say goodbye to Vancouver a little bit, and I am very sorry that I'm kind of contributing to this uh, little bit of a logjam, but. Uh, I've said this before uh, during Fun Drive segments about CITR and about this sense of community that I found here. Uh, and this, the ability to make this show uh, has been a privilege. It's been an honor. And the ability to take in this much culture, like what I've just ranted about, what I've, what I've seen, all these connections I've drawn, if nothing else, it's a fantastic thing. And if any of you out here are listening, if any of you want to do anything, uh, if you want to record comedy, if you want to record music, if you're, if you're in poetry, if you're interested in these mediums, CITR is, in many respects, is here for you, and that's what they're here to do. So I, in closing, it, as I leave this community, which is one of my regrets about leaving Vancouver, I, I, I implore those out there, if you want to do it, we can just ask. Just ask us, and we can do our best to help. That's what we're here for. That's what they did for me, and for that, I will always be grateful. This has been the Arts Report, broadcasting from the unceded Musqueam territory of UBC's Point Grey campus. I'm your host, Jake Clark. I am Sarah. And it's been it's been a wonderful time. Love and mercy to you all. We'll miss you, Jake.
Without the help and support of our friends, we here at CITR wouldn't be able to bring you all the great music, art, cinema, and culture that you love. Thanks to the long-standing support from the Rio Theatre, we are able to